Well, brothers and sisters, I invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles uh, once again to the book of John. We were in the book of John last week, but I'm going to ask you to turn to the beginning of the book of John, John chapter 2. We have been looking for the past several weeks Uh, We've been looking at and seeking to meditate on uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ uh, through these accounts of the meals uh, that he's attended, uh, the meals that he attended in his life for the Son of Man. I've said this phrase to you over and over again. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And last week we looked at the meal that he is and the meal that he will host. Well, we continue in that same vein this week with that same series. And I want to piggyback on the wedding theme that we looked at and picked up from Revelation chapter 19 last week. I love wedding imagery, and uh, more importantly, uh, Jesus loves wedding imagery, and he himself loved weddings, and so I want to look at his first miracle uh, while he was on earth, the wedding celebration in Cana. This is one of my favorite passages. Uh, I really love this passage. This is where my heart needed to be uh, this week. It's a passage that only John records, uh, but it's a passage that I love not just because of the setting uh, that it is in, uh, but more importantly, what it communicates about who our Savior is. And so listen to God's word uh, with me, John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along uh, with the scriptures uh, that you have before you uh, or on the screen in front of you. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of it and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I haven't been able to check in with each of you uh, this week, but I want to ask you a question that maybe you've been asked by those who have checked in with you. It's a question I've asked multiple people. It's a question I've been asked even this morning, and that is, how are you doing? How are you doing? What is the state 
of your heart. We're all in similar circumstances these days. And it's been hard. It's been hard in in different ways. Maybe you've gone from being fearful to just now you're downright frustrated. Maybe you're, you're stuck in that state of, of, of anxiety. We're all asking questions what, like what scientific study should we read? What scientific study should we believe? What projection is right? And most importantly, when will this all be over? I think we're all ready for the cloud to be lifted and the sun to shine again. Well, this morning, for the next few minutes, I want to lift your eyes, my eyes, our hearts to the sun because I want to talk about joy. I want to set our hearts on a Savior who is all about joy. Your joy, my joy, I want to do this that in turn we ourselves would fight for joy. We would be filled with joy despite our circumstances. As I said before we read this passage, we go back in time from where we were last week to very early in Jesus' ministry before he really began making waves in ancient Palestine we come to a scene that, 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 that I think is just beautiful. In light of Jesus and, and what we know about his love for wedding imagery and the design of marriage, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is hanging out at a wedding. I notice that Jesus is not there to officiate. He's not there to uh, confront any uh, false teachers or religious leaders. Jesus is there as a young man Seemingly there just to enjoy the celebration. But of course, there is more to it. There always is with Jesus. Jesus didn't move about in a haphazard way, but moved about purposefully. And so Jesus is there, John tells us in verse 8, excuse me, verse 11. Jesus is there to inaugurate his signs. These miracles, these these supernatural events that will attest to the fact that he is who he claims to be. In fact, John, the writer of uh, of this gospel, will say at the end of this book in John chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so as this story comes to us from John chapter two, a a story again of Jesus at a meal, at a feast in this case, I want us to meditate for a few minutes on the heart of Jesus and what that heart then brings to our lives, the ripple effects of Jesus' person and work to our lives. I don't know if you noticed or not when I read, but as John records this event, no one else matters. No one else matters at this wedding. No one else is referred to by their name. 
We don't know who the bride is. We don't know who the groom is. We don't know why Jesus or his mother or his disciples were invited. It's as if all our eyes need to be focused on the carpenter's son from Nazareth. And indeed, that's what I want to do this morning. In trying times, in difficult circumstances, I want to just proclaim one truth and meditate on that for a few minutes. And that's this, Jesus brings joy to life. Jesus brings joy to life. When I say joy, I'm talking about something deeper than happiness. We've talked about joy as a, I've preached on joy as a topic from various scriptures. Joy is not some um, momentary distraction. Joy is this satisfaction, this contentment, this happiness that, that fills our sails in order to carry through life. Jesus is the bringer of that kind of joy. And you say, yeah, Pastor Nate, but I'm not at a wedding. It'd be easier to be joyful if I was at a wedding. I'm stuck in my pajamas in my living room. I hear you. We all wish we were at this wedding. It would be easier to be joyful at this wedding. It'd be easier to be joyful anywhere outside of our house. But Jesus is still the bringer of joy this morning and in seeing his heart and in reminding you of his work, I want to arm you this morning with joy. So let's think about the account. Let's just walk through it a little bit for the next few minutes. This is Jesus' very first sign. This, to many, is his introduction into the world. How will Jesus begin his ministry? Will he walk on water? Will he raise someone from the dead? Will he touch a leper and heal that man? Well, he'll do all that, but not here. No, he decides here to make some wine, some really good wine. Just like we see in other places in the gospel. Well, the resurrection for one. If you were making this stuff up, if you were making the resurrection up, you wouldn't have women be the first witnesses because women in the ancient world were not reliable witnesses. Just like you wouldn't have Jesus' introduction and splash on the scene be a miracle making water to wine. And yet here it is. We've talked a little bit about weddings. Weddings today are big occasions. Wedding back then were, were even bigger. They were regional events, huge communal festivals where at the center of the feast was wine. Therefore, to run out of wine would have been a terrible embarrassment to the hosts. And so what does Jesus do as he's here attending this wedding? What does Jesus do? Surely there are more important concerns in his life, in his ministry, than a little embarrassment. But out of compassion and out of kindness in the midst of a common people, in a small town in Galilee, Jesus, the bringer of joy, performs a quiet, extravagant miracle. No touching, No speaking, no mixing, no stirring. He turns water into wine. He invades physical 
reality enters into the ordinary and does something extraordinary. Now I want you to notice a couple things about this miracle. First, I want you to notice Jesus' unassuming kindness. You see, it may be loud and clear. It is loud and clear to us sitting here this morning that Jesus is the one who did this. But to the people at this feast, to the people that night partying, they just continued rather seamlessly. Only a handful of people, the the servants, Jesus' mother, the master of the feast, presumably, presumably some of the disciples there knew I suspect once the bridegroom, once things died down and the bridegroom was told what happened, he'd get to the bottom of things. But as far as we can tell right now, the guests, they don't know anything. This is no Moses raising his arms to part the Red Sea. No, Jesus began the revelation of his glory much like he entered the world. Quiet and unassuming. And yet to those who were witnesses, it was unforgettable. But also notice, not just Jesus' unassuming kindness, bringing joy to this scene, but notice the extravagant grace. If there's any doubt that Jesus brought joy to this party, To this family, one needs to only check out the wine. (laughs) Six jars, each holding approximately 17 to 25 gallons of water. And since they were filled to the top, we are talking about 100 to 150 gallons of wine. And not just wine, good wine. The best wine. The kind that they usually served at the beginning of the evening when everyone could still taste and think straight. Make no mistake, this this was extravagant. Yet Jesus shows his incomparable power as the promised Messiah, the one who is not only sent by God, but who is God. And it shows his compassionate joy to lavish upon his people extravagant grace and to fill them with joy. Indeed, Jesus is the Lord of the feast. Brothers and sisters, may our lives be marked by the joy that Jesus brings. His gifts are good. His promises are true. His grace is extravagant and he desires that his people might know him and enjoy life in him. You see, far from being a killjoy, Jesus reveals and reminds us of the sweetness, literally the sweetness of life. And you know that that doesn't mean that life is easy. Doesn't mean that following Jesus never means any suffering. To the contrary, we will suffer, but it does mean, as Psalm 30 says, that weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes with the, with the morning. And so I invite you to remember 
this heart, to remember this power, to remember this promise, especially amidst the sadness and frustration of a quarantine brought on by a global pandemic. Jesus is the bringer of joy. But this miracle is also, it's more than just revealing the heart of our Savior, but it also reveals Jesus' mission. A mission that involves death. For what we can't miss in John's recording of this event is its place in redemptive history, in this story that God is writing, this plan to redeem and to restore a creation that has been marred by sin. It begins, if we were to flip back just a couple or just one chapter to John chapter one, it begins where John begins. In the beginning was the word. John begins his gospel with an allusion to the very first words of scripture, to the very first words of time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now here we are one chapter later to the one who is recreating, who is making all things new in himself. You see, Jesus came not only to bring earthly joy, but to bring eternal joy through the giving of himself. There are some things here that are interesting pointers to this reality. First, I want to think for a moment about Jesus' brief interaction with his, his mother, Mary's question to Jesus was certainly not out of place. I don't think any of us would say that. But it sure seems like Jesus' answer is, right? He, he, he calls her woman. And when we read this, we, we see Mary's awareness of the need. She knows who her son is. She presumes that Jesus could help, but though she doesn't know exactly what that's going to look like. And we cheer her request. Yes, Mary, you've asked the right person. That is, until we're seemingly stunned by Jesus' response as he quips back and he says, woman. Certainly in our time and our place, this this seems unacceptable, but what we need to understand is that in that culture, this was, this was not a greeting of disrespect. Our equivalent today might be lady or the very southern man. And though no disrespect was intended by Jesus or was communicated by Jesus, what we need to see is that though disrespect wasn't being communicated, distance was. What I mean by that is Jesus' words begin to convey to his own mother and to those around her that she must begin thinking about him as not just her son, but she must begin trusting him as the Lord of all. One thinks back to when he was 12 years old. Jesus was in the temple. His parents came back and What did he say to his parents as a 12-year-old? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And so Jesus, speaking to his mother here at this feast, goes on and he makes another loaded statement. What does this have to do with me? Again, distancing himself 
from any human advice or any human agenda. You see, Jesus had an agenda of his own. Jesus came to be Savior and Lord. Jesus came to solve more than a problem at a party. Jesus came to be the one who brings eternal joy through his death. And so he says this phrase, my hour has not yet come. It's almost as if uh, Jesus' thoughts are somewhere else. He's not addressing the problem. One commentator I read made this point. It's an interesting one. When When you're single and at a wedding, how easily your thoughts drift to the future and to what lies ahead for your own life. For some, weddings are incredibly painful. This commentator goes on to point out that Jesus may may be doing the the very same thing and he's not looking ahead to his earthly wedding because Jesus never got married. But to all the imagery that this occasion and that this predicament is creating. It seems to point that way when he says, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Well, the rest of John's gospel tells us in John 7, 30, it says that the Jews sought to arrest him, but could not because his hour had not yet come. It happens again in chapter 8, verse 20. But his hour had not yet come. In John 12, 23, Jesus says that his hour has come. And then he goes on to tell how the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then in John 17, 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. You see, it's clear that the hour has not yet come means that the time has not yet come for me to reveal myself in a way that will lead to my death. Jesus came with an agenda. He came to do the will of the Father. And that will of the Father that Jesus agreed to do was to die on a cross for sinners like you and me. Even here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is focused on that day. He sees the bride, the beautiful bride at this wedding, And he thinks about his people and those he's making blameless for his return. He sees the bridegroom and he sees himself and the sacrifice that he will make for his people, for his bride. He thinks about the wine and he sees the blood that he needs to shed in order to accomplish all this. You see, his words point us to that day. The day when he brings eternal joy to his people by dying for them. But there's one more pointer here in this passage that John gives us. Beyond Jesus' words to Mary, there's the jars. The jars. What were the jars used for? 
Well, John tells us, they were water pots used for the Jewish rites of purification. Don't miss this. The old covenant cleansing with water has been replaced by the work of our Savior with the wine of gladness. See, that's what John is communicating. That's what John is pointing forward to. That's what John is giving just a shadow of. The mere cleansing with water was never enough, but the wine of the Son, which points to his death, has come. Jesus has come to bring joy. Brothers and sisters, this is our rock in the midst of anxiety and fear that we have an inheritance, imperishable, unfading, a hope secured by his death, validated by his resurrection, kept in heaven for us. Christ has risen, death is defeated. We all want joy, we need joy, and Jesus is the solution. And so I invite you to come to him, to look to him, to find consolation in the sure promises of his word. Nehemiah told his people, God's people of old, the people of Israel in Nehemiah 8.10 in a very difficult time in their history that the joy of the Lord is their strength. And that was the old covenant. How much more in this new covenant era where we have Jesus in vivid color, the bringer of joy. Whatever the pain, whatever the struggle, no matter the circumstances, there can be joy. So fix your gaze upon Jesus. Rejoice and rest in the joy that he brings. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful scene that's so rich with with shadows that speak of Jesus' work, rich with pointers that speak of Jesus' heart for his people and his desire for them. Father, I pray that you would use, by the power of your spirit, that you would use this word in the lives of those listening and watching today to calm their anxieties, to calm their fears as they fix their gaze upon you, Lord Jesus, the one who loves his people, who loves to fill them with joy, who has indeed secured eternal joy for all who find their rest, all who find their hope in him. Father, if there are any listening and watching this morning who have not looked to Jesus, oh, may what they have heard this morning just make them hungry for more. God, I pray that you would attach them not only to your word, but to another believer and to the church that they might truly experience the joy and the life and the peace that can be found in the midst of uncertain times because we serve a certain God, a rock on whom we can stand. Do your work in us, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen.